Hello, I'm Mike Arnold of Children's Hospital Colorado, and welcome to Episode 4 of PathPod, the first edition of IHC Talk. I'm joined today by Andrew Belizzi of the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Welcome to the program, Andrew. Glad to be here. Thanks for hosting. Yeah, this is going to be fun. And we're also joined by Sanam Lugavi of MD Anderson Cancer Center. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. And Jared Gardner of the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. Hey, thanks for having me. You can follow us all on Twitter. I'm marnold underscore peedpath. Dr. Belizzi is IHC underscore guy. That's IHC underscore G-U-Y. Dr. Lugavi is S-A-N-A-M-L-O-G-H-A-V-I. And Dr. Gardner is J.M. Gardner, M.D. Welcome, everybody. How did y'all become friends? I feel like an interloper. No. Phenomenon I go way back to, I don't know, is it ASDP first? ASDP, I think it was probably what, like 2009 or something? Probably long. Maybe. Yeah, it was a long time ago. And then Mike and Christina, I met at a meeting in Texas a long time ago, and then, but then really got to know them on Twitter, I guess. Yeah. Twitter, I think, first. Yeah, we did your we did your social media course at USCAP, and oh, I think it was right. 2016. Is that right? That's right. That was in Seattle. Yeah, they're they're right there in that that legendary picture from the. Yes. Yeah, and I'm Twitter besties with Christina, so I know I know Mike by association. <laughs> Andrew, I think, has the incredible distinction of the fastest pathologist in the entire world to go from zero to a thousand followers on Twitter just three days. Andrew, what's it been like to get on Twitter and have such a reaction? Overwhelming. Yeah, I I think I I shared with the uh, with the fo- with the followers after I'd been on a a week or ten days that uh, that it it uh, it's induce it's ADHD inducing. It's it's uh, it's bringing out the unfocused in me. Yeah, but it's been delightful and. I'm so in, I'm so impressed by the talent that's that's online, and everybody's elevating everybody else, and everybody's everybody's so smart, and everybody knows the answer to my challenging case before I before I do. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna crowdsource my my diagnoses from now on. Oh, that's great. What what held you back from getting on Twitter sooner? And what do, what do you think you'd tell yourself from a few months ago about why you should get on it? I definitely had uh, thought about being on for a long time and uh, and saw and was very admiring of the impact that you all have had on pathology education, mainly uh, through the platform. But my, the main thing holding me back was I knew that once I got on that I wasn't going to go at it halfway and that it was going to be, you know, it's going to be a new thing, new thing in my, my life. I, I got a lot of, I got a lot of things. Now I got one more thing and I, um, the time was, the time was appropriate. That's great. You've been doing an amazing job. I I really love the things you posted. Yep. It's just, uh, it's just uh, another way for me to be an old man. (laughs) (laughs) Sanam, you're also, of course, very active on Twitter and very good friends with my wife, Christina. She said to say hello to you. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, we're Twitter besties. (laughs) 
Yeah, I try to, you know, keep an active presence. Um, it's, it's actually kind of difficult for me to um, keep my mouth shut on Twitter. I try to maintain a professional persona, but sometimes, you know, I say things and do things that I'm like, oh my God, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Uh, but, you know, it's just me being me. What, what have you said on Twitter that you've been surprised about the reaction that you got? Actually, the most surprising thing happened to me maybe a couple of days ago. I posted something about um, uh, about Salk and the polio vaccine, and um, it it went viral. That's like the first time I've had any viral posts. I got retweeted by Jake Tapper, and in a matter of like two or I don't know two three hours, it got like two thousand five hundred likes and like three hundred thousand impressions or something like that. It was like wow. <laughs> It wasn't even something that I was expecting, you know, to go viral, but it was very interesting. And well, it's, you know, like Andrew was saying, it's just like totally ADHD inducing. Well, that's incredible. And yeah. of course, Jared is the godfather of pathology Twitter. <laughs> He's literally taught us how to do it. Jared, what is it like to kind of be somebody who was at the forefront of all this saw the possibilities of it and then got so many things out of it, got so many people involved. Well, um, I mean, it's, it's cool. It's really awesome to, to look back and, uh, and uh, realize that I had no idea any of this stuff was going to happen uh, when I first started doing it. But I think that's like a lot of things, just like you post something, it goes viral. Most people don't expect that they're going to make something or post something that, that takes off. Right. And, um, I mean, I, I know I've worked hard at this, but I kind of was lucky I was in the right place at the right time, really. But I'm, I, and I've just, and I was just rebellious enough. Just, uh, I like to push the envelope a little bit. My wife, she's a psychiatrist. She says that I'm uh, oppositional defiant disorder. And so I think that, <laughs> that, that God gave me that, uh, that disorder just so that I could grow up and, and, uh, push pathology, uh, forward on social media because it was just enough outside the box and a little risky and just the kind of thing that I was like, yeah, I can do this. Everyone says I can't. So, um, but anyway, really it's, it's all about the community. Right. And I think that's the the thing I realized if I would have tried doing it sooner, it would have really fallen flat because there wouldn't have been enough people there. And it's really, that's the thing that keeps me and most people coming back is there are lots of places you can get free content online, but it's that, that vibrant interaction. And see, I see all of you nodding your heads here. Yeah. Um, uh, for listeners, we're, we're actually seeing each other, even though you guys don't see us, but it's to me that it's that, that community of, of people and who are like-minded all coming together from different backgrounds, different countries to help teach each other. And like Andrew said earlier, to elevate um, everyone and um, at the same time to promote patient care. I mean, it's beautiful, right? It's, it's the thing we need in a world that's more connected than ever, but also sometimes more divided than ever. And this is a dose of, uh, of togetherness that I think is, is good for all of us. So uh, to me, I just get happier and happier to see uh, all these people getting, uh, getting linked together and all these good things coming out of it. Like this, right? This is all coming together because of, of us talking online, right? Exactly, so, yeah. Cool. I got to say the speech signing out cases. <laughs> <laughs> Jared, I, I'm going to guess that there's at least a handful of people that are going to listen to this that haven't looked at pathology Twitter, don't really understand what's going on. Tell those folks kind of the top three things that have come out of Twitter for you mm. in terms of your professional development. Well, oh, top three. I mean, I mean, to 
be blunt, I'm I'm eight years into practice and I'm one of the most recognized pathologist names in the world. And that's not because of amazing research papers I've written or any of that. I mean, I think I've done some decent research, but it's because I'm the guy who tweets about pathology and makes YouTube videos and Facebook and all that stuff. And whether that's fair or not, I don't know, but but that's the way it is. And so I feel like it definitely has boosted me by giving me visibility. And that's opened just numerous doors. I've gotten to go speak at all sorts of amazing countries internationally and had tons of collaborations that have resulted in peer-reviewed publications. So even if you're academic, it's definitely boosted my academic career. But on, in all honesty, though, the, the thing that I, I love the most is all these great people that I've met that I would never have met otherwise in real life, which is the to me, the craziest thing to think of all these wonderful people I'm friends with now and consider like really close friends that I would not have met if it would have just been for going to pathology meetings because we never were at the same meetings, uh, things like that. So, but yeah, definitely it's, it's opened enormous potential um, for my career. It's let me do traditional stuff faster, better, stronger than I ever could have done it the old school way. So I still do all the old school stuff. I just do it a lot better because I'm using social media to amplify it. Tell us really briefly about some of the interactions that I know you've had with patients and patient advocacy groups. Sure. So most of the the interaction with patient groups I've done is on Facebook, although to some extent on Twitter, but, but on Facebook, there are all these rare cancer patient groups, people that have rare diseases that come together and make a group for other patients to find out information and to kind of um, support each other. And I started volunteering in some of those groups back in uh, 2015, I guess it was, 2014, 2014, sorry. And um, they totally accepted me and said, we love having a doctor here. This is so great. And I just kind of explained terminology and, and, you know, I I thought I would join to teach them, but in, in all honesty, I've learned probably more from them than I've taught them. And it's really just given me a different perspective on life and, and everything. It's totally changed my life. So I have a paper about that. And I just gave a TED talk uh, recently that's supposed to be out soon on the TEDx YouTube channel once they finish editing it about just how life-changing it's been to work with these patient groups. I mean, the way the thing it boils down to is I know the names and faces of people with angiosarcoma and dermatofibrosarcoma for two brands. And when I diagnose that in my practice now, I know what that's going to mean for that person's life because I've met people who are going through that. And I never have to wonder if the work that I do as a pathologist matters because I know the names and faces of people who are just like my own patients uh, who it matters for. And, you know, you ever need a a boost in in realizing the meaning and value in the work that you do, go join a Facebook patient group. It'll change your life. That's amazing. And what a great introduction to hear a little bit from everybody. Well, let's get down to some questions. We had Jared and Sanam bring some questions related to the talks that Andrew and I recently gave for the CAP Virtual Path. So Jared, you want to go ahead and start? So the first question and the most important and dear to my heart is, tell me what you think about Vimentin. (laughs) (laughs) What is that? I'm not familiar. (laughs) I live for the day that people will say, what's Vimentin? That sounds like some old timey obsolete thing. You know, (laughs) I mean, I, I give these talks and I always rail against Vimentin and, uh, and I, I, I think that I'm, abundantly clear about it but i uh i was i was going through these these questions that had been submitted uh online uh during the talk at the end of the talk and and one of the questions was should we not put vimentin as a screening marker for sarcoma then uh if not (laughs) then which one should be used in instead so so it's not just so it's not just my girlfriend and my kids that don't listen to me. 
<laughs> you know, it's uh it's it's fun to it's fun to dogpile. And I think if you're gonna dogpile on a stain, bimenton is bimenton is pretty good. Uh, although I did see um a lot of people respond. Oh, everybody hates bimenton, so I so a lot of people responded very uh, positively to that negative energy. But because everybody on Twitter is so smart, I learned all these things that I never uh, never knew about bimenton. All these ways that people are using it that are perfectly reasonable ways ways to use it, like. Um, one guy uh, uses it to diagnose Sertoli only syndrome in the testis. So Vimentin is expressed by Sertoli cells and it's not expressed by germ, germ cells. I said, oh, I use WT1 for that, but that's, that's cool. Uh, some neuropathologist was using it for myoepithelial differentiation in some, in some context when all other myoepithelial markers were met. Were negative, and then of course the the most frequently uh, cited reason to to use bimentin is to confirm the antigenicity of tissue. But yeah, I don't. I see Jared's shaking his head and Sanam as well. I don't. I don't go. I mean, if your if your tissues coming out of your own lab, it should it should be should not have prolonged cold ischemia time. It should be well fixed and it should be uh, antigenic. And unfortunately. Just because your tissue's well processed and or poorly processed and still reacts with bimentin doesn't mean that willy-nilly, no way to predict it, that it's gonna be non-reactive with one of the other antibodies that you that you throw at it. The best, the best control is a internal control. So that's that's been my thought. Like I as a sarcoma pathologist, I told people, man, I I people you may say some people hate bimentin, but boy, they sure seem to friggin' use it a lot still because I can't tell you how many bimentin stains I've seen, none of which I've ordered ever since I was a fellow. And it was during fellowship, actually, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bimentins that were sent in uh, that made me start really having the, the deep loathing that I have for bimentin today. Just because, <laughs> like you said, you know, everyone's got to have something to, to rail against. And this is my way to, to be an old man and be like, you kids get off my yard. So the Vimentin's like my, my way to, to complain about something, but, but yeah, like I, I just tell people, look, I'm, I don't have any con, I can't uh, speak outside of spindle cell tumors and derm path, but in those settings, there's no reasonable, legit use for Vimentin today to my knowledge and others organs, not my deal. I don't know, but, but yeah, the antigenicity, it's a, it's an intermediate filament, right? So it's like this big, huge protein. It's not going to suddenly disappear just because the cell dies, just like keratin, keratin stains dead dead keratinocytes like the stratum corneum and the skin. So bimentin will do the same thing. It's just like keratin. It's a big, thick, strong filament that takes a long time to break down. So your tissue can be dead as dead and still stain with bimentin. So yeah, I just feel like I've never seen a time where it, I tell people I've never seen one time where bimentin changed the diagnosis, not once. But yet even sometimes people I've trained go out and practice and they send me a case and what did they order? My mentor, and I feel like Maybe they just don't like you. <laughs> I think they're doing it like, on your nerves or something. And yeah. they're like, let's send this to Jared so that he can see we're ordering my mentor. They're totally trying to get a rise out of me and it's working. <laughs> no, but can I tell you my, my little heme path, two cents? And that's that as a hematopathologist, I have never, ever ordered my mentor in my life. You're so my be hero. proud of me. <laughs> 
Um, and, you know, I, I know it doesn't mean as much because we don't really use Vimentin in our routine staining practices. Uh, but, you know, I just wanted you to be proud of me. And the other thing is, since you mentioned dead tissue and keratins, again, kind of unrelated, but remember, CD20 stains all dead B-cell lymphomas that were CD20, were CD20 positive when they were alive. So that's also my little heme passing. CD20 is rad. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, it doesn't go away when the cells die. I remember the, uh, yeah, that was, that was something that one of my awesome teachers in residency, his name is John Kowser, who's a lymph node guy. And uh, yeah, all the, all the time, CD20, you could rely on a, in a dead, right. large B-cell lymphoma, smaller. Yes, and it's real staining. It's specific yeah. staining, unlike CD15 that just stains necrosis. CD, CD20 is real when it's positive. CD20, the real deal. The so only... that's, really, that's fascinating. I, I had always thought that all the CD markers pretty much are real delicate and fragile because there are membrane markers and that when the cells, or many of them are membrane markers, and that when the cells die, that the, those uh, CD markers break down. So that's true of, of some CD markers, but not CD20? Yeah, or... yeah so CD20 doesn't go away. But actually, so what's more helpful and important is that it, it doesn't non-specifically stain necrosis. Uh, Unlike some, like CD15, you cannot trust, right? I'm sure you've seen it. CD15 non-specifically stains necrosis. It doesn't okay. matter whether the tissue was actually CD15 positive when it was viable or not, right? But CD20 is not like that. So if you have a dead lymphoma that's CD20 positive, it's a B-cell lymphoma. Cool. That's really, that's yeah. good to know. And to beat a dead horse, Vimentin, dead or alive. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag dad jokes. In, in in pediatric pathology, so I've never ordered it. But the one place that I've seen it used in pediatric pathology is it's actually negative, reliably in neuroblastoma. Mm -hmm. So that's something. If you happen to get a case and that's negative for Vimentin, that's something to think about. Um. Okay. Uh, the next question I have is about uh, TLE one. Do you find TLE1 useful in your practice or, you know, in my practice, it seems uh, somewhat wishy-washy and unreliable and may maybe I'm just doing something wrong. I just want to say for the non-surgical pathologist in the room, can you tell me a little bit more about TLE1, the basics? What is it? Well, sure. So TLE1 is a marker for synovial sarcoma. The SS18, SSX fusion protein actually causes TLE1 expression to increase? TLE1 is a perfect example of, of what I call next generation immunohistochemistry or translational molecular pathology. So the way that TLE1 was discovered was through gene expression pro profiling experiments. So there's mm -hmm. this guy, Torsten Nielsen, who you guys may know, he's a breast pathologist. He's in British Columbia, I think. And, uh, but for whatever reason, they, they did this project uh, about 15 years ago where they did gene expression profiling of a bunch of sarcomas and found their big hit from this experiment was they found TLE1 was, uh, was the marker that was most upregulated relative to, relative to others in synovial sarcoma. And then they took it to pick. They found an antibody and they took it and they took it to paraffin. It stands for 
transducin-like enhancer of split one. And, and so after that paper was published in 2007 in AJSP, it took off a little bit in the diagnostic pathology literature. And there's going to be inevitably, you know, five or so identical papers that validate it, you know, published in AMJ Surge Path, AJCP, histopathology archives, et cetera, et cetera. My buddy, Jason Hornick, he brought it up. He brought it on. I think he brought it on about the time that I started at Brigham, which was in 2009. And simultaneously, it's published that it's also expressed in malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumor and other tumors. It's a good example of a marker that's useful in the context of a refined morphologic differential diagnosis. And also, you have to pay attention to the extent and the intensity of the staining. Um, and this is super, this is super critical for all IHC. And unfortunately, it's context dependent. Um, you know, how one of the questions that I had fielded was how many cells staining counts as positive staining? And it depends on the marker. And more specifically, it depends on the marker and the diagnostic context. So for me, in my lab, the way my stain is optimized in a sarcoma, diffuse strong three plus 100% TLA1 positivity is specific for synovial sarcoma. And MPNSTs are often positive, but it's it's weaker and it's pat and it's patchier. I knew for a long time that TLE1 was expressed by carcinomas. That was observation. Um, so I pulled up data from C BioPortal. Do you guys do you guys know this? Do you guys use this? It's an amazing tool and resource for you know like genetic molecular uh, data and making graphs, analyzing. That. It's really really nice. You guys should check it out. I use this tool almost every day. There are a subset, and these just turned out to be, and I didn't know, uh, but these are endometrial cancers. So you would predict if you, if you put TLE1 on 100 endometrial cancers in array, that there'd be 20% of them that, were, that, would, that would light up. I found melanoma. There's a small number of melanomas that are expressing it at the same level, and there was one other, one other carcinoma type. So so this is this is a uh, this is a, a tool that I use to test hypotheses before I even apply them to the TMA. So TLE one's good, but it's not perfect. But I wanted to highlight. So there's a there's a new. So this this TLE one is is upregulated, discovered through gene expression profiling. My buddy again, Jason Hornick. Uh, was collaborating with a with a basic scientist who studies synovial sarcoma and SWISNF and a, a company cell signaling in Boston made new monoclonal antibodies one to uh, one to uh, SS18 and one to the SSX SS18 transfusion specific IHC. And, uh, and it just got published in AMJ Surge, AMJ Surge Path last month. And the SS18, SSX fusion-specific antibody was 95% sensitive and 100%, 100% specific in 300 sarcomas 
like genetically confirmed, like all the morphologic mimics, uh, and the and I think I I think I m- misspoke. I said it was to SS18. It's to SSX. The SSX was a hundred percent sensitive, but like ninety seven or ninety eight percent specific. And the idea this is way better than TLE one. This won't be this won't be positive in carcinomas, or it, and it's not positive in MPNST. And the idea is that this IHC is so good, so specific, that it'll replace if you're doing fish or NGS or synovial sarcoma. So check it out. Is it commercially available now? Yep. Cell signaling has made the antibodies commercially available. Cell signaling was was waiting for the paper to be EPUB before they Mm. made it commercially available, but it's been commercially available for two whole weeks. Wow. That's, that's exciting. I was going to say that I really don't use TLE1 because if I'm thinking about synovial sarcoma, I'm going to do fish or PCR just because those are so incredibly sensitive and specific. Uh, so it's good to hear there's an antibody coming out that's going to hope has the potential to replace those tests even. That's, yeah, that's, that's been my my approach is if it looks good for synovial sarcoma, like if it's biphasic, I mean, what else can it be? Right. I'll diagnose it on H&E if it's real classic and I have a nice sample. Uh, if it looks good for monophasic and I've got, you know, keratin expression, it's got those real nice uniform nuclei, you know, I sometimes will feel comfortable just with the keratin and excluding the other things in the differential, depending on the scenario. But if I'm uncertain about it, I'm just going to go straight to fish usually is what I do because... Feel like by the time I do a panel, if I if I feel, feel pretty comfortable that that's what it's going to be, one fish probe for that, you know, it's going to be cheaper than me running a panel of stains. Sometimes, uh, maybe it, it takes a bit longer, but not that much longer. So, but yeah, having having the the transcript protein and antibody against the transcript in, in available in the lab would be, you know, you could order that morning, have it that afternoon. That'd be pretty nice. And it's totally paradigm shifting because we have mutation specific IHC. But this is the first antibody that I'm aware of that's specific for the fusion protein. Yeah, that's really cool. So I hear people talk a lot about SATV2, you know, stains, osteosarcomas and other stuff. But, but I honestly have not really personally used it or seen where it would be useful in my bone and soft tissue pathology practice. But, but is it something you use and what, what context do you use SATV2 <clears throat> in? So I've had some experience with it in the setting of soft tissue sarcomas because kids tend not to get carcinomas. And interestingly, the control tissue that we had with it for a long time was a lymph node because it stains T cells really nicely. So it's not entirely specific for the osteoblast lineage. Uh, I've used it a few times in things that were poorly differentiated in the bone just to see if there was some osteoblastic differentiation in them. Uh, but it, it it stains benign osteoblasts as well as malignant. So it's it's limited. I think it's a pretty limited use antibody for soft tissue tumors. I I use it all the time, but I use it in I use it in multiple diagnostic uh, contexts. And I, I'd say, you know, it's in sarcoma diagnostics. Perhaps it's it, it's the most limited. There is one sort of side application you could use it for. But I, you know, I'm I'm mainly doing epithelium. And I'm doing a lot of carcinoma of unknown primary. And so, so SATB2's, you know, most famous reputation as a, is as a 
lower GI specific markers. So colon specific or colon, colon appendix specific. And uh, before I had SAT-B2, I would use CDX2. And again, just like with the TLE1, it's, it's the extent and the intensity of the staining. So I would use what I called homogeneous CDX2, which is three plus 100% CDX2 diffuse strong staining for lower GI to distinguish it from gastric cancer, esophageal cancer, small intestinal cancer. But uh, some of those upper tract adenocarcinomas are CDX2 homogeneous, which would cause me to screw up. And SATB2 is positive in colon and appendix, and it's weak to negative in even the CDX2 strong upper GI adenocarcinoma. So that was the mainline application. Jason described the SATB2, Jason Hornick again, described SATB2 as a marker of osteoblastic. Uh, differentiation. And that was, again, this is another example of uh, next-gen IHC, where this time you're looking at the developmental biology literature. And like Michael said, it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't differentiate benign from malignant osteoids. So it has some, I'd have, you know, areas where I'd say, oh, is this osteoid or is this just, uh, you know, sclerotic stroma? And if the SAP2 was positive, I'd say that it was osteoid. Or I'd have a triple MT and I'd wonder if there was a little focus of osteosarc and I'd put a SAT-B2 on, uh, on that. The, the, the one thing that came out a couple years ago and, and I, I used it to screen for this is SAT-B2 is usually positive like two thirds to 75% of the time in B-core rearranged sarcomas or, or, or tumors with B-core genetic abnormality. Sometimes they have internal tandem duplication. And I didn't have B-core IHC in my lab. I didn't have enough cases to do a validation. So I screened for B-core genetic abnormalities and sarcomas with SAT-B2. I finally was able to validate B-core. So, so that's, that's another. And then I use it in neuroendocrine tumors. Um, it stains rectal neuroendocrine tumors and appendiceal ones uh, and not other ones. You can get, again, weak patchy staining in some other ones. So it's useful for rectum versus pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor, which otherwise they have very overlapping uh, immunoprofiles. And then the, the last way that I use it is it's expressed by Merkel. And this would be of interest to you, Jared. It's expressed by Merkel cell carcinoma. 70% of Merkel cell carcinomas are SAP2 positive, diffuse strong staining, and uh, it has to be diffuse and strong for it to have sort of uh, the ability to localize the cutaneous origin of a neuroendocrine carcinoma. But, but lung and extrapulmonary visceral necks are SAP2 weak, weak to negative. So I found it to be 70% sensitive, which is okay, not perfect and 95% specific for cutaneous origin in a neck. I use CK20e, of course, is the mainstay. I also use neurofilament for that application. So I, I love SAP-B2. SAP-B2 is stains I love are these oligospecific transcription factors. I love when I can get three or four or five diagnostic applications out of a single marker. Cool. Andrew, did you, what was the specificity and the sensitivity for the B-core uh, altered uh, tumors? 
the B core is somewhere between two thirds and 75%. The specificity, it depends on what you, it depends on what you put in the, you know, in your, in your cohort, but it's reasonably, it's reasonably specific. Small cell osteosarcoma is the main, is the main sort of morphologic uh, differential that would be, be uh, that would be uh, 72 positive. I'm sorry. You know, interestingly, uh, it you'd think that B core would be bet would be better, and it turns out, and I don't understand why why this is that a significant minority of synovial sarcomas are positive for the B core. Uh, I see maybe twenty or so percent, although it tends to be weak and patchy, not diffuse and strong. That's interesting. The reason I'm asking is, you know, some some AMLs and myeloid neoplasms are also B core uh, altered, mostly mutations. But um, yeah, that's interesting. And I'm interested at at Mike's observation that it's positive in lymphoid stuff. I I, I knew this, and I and so I actually tried. So for the SAT B2, a couple of years ago, I saw I saw that staining in in uh, hematolymphoid stuff, and I got all excited. I thought that some uh, leukemias and lymphomas would be positive. And I put it on a, I put it on AML uh, and ALL arrays and they were all, they were all negative. What a, bu- mm-hmm. what a bummer. Is it AMLs that have B-core abnormalities? Yeah, some AMLs do. And then some, um, some actually MDS and AMLs that arise from aplastic anemias yeah. do. Yeah. yeah. So like the bone marrow failure syndrome. It would be interesting t- to see those maybe those are the ones that would be SAT B2. Yeah, I'm going to try it. The next time I see one, I'm going to try it. And you guys have B and you guys do B core on those as as well. We do B core. Well, no, not by IHC, not by, not by IHC, but B core is in our NGS panel. Yeah. And the, and the, and the SAT B2 is like the TLE one, the TLE one. It was Christina Antoniescu at MSK. Mm-hmm. She had. She was. She was figuring out the B core uh, rearranged sarcomas and did gene expression profiling and was surprised to find. But I guess you shouldn't be. It's going to be hot for something. But but found that SAT B two was was the marker that that you know that has nothing. You know, seemingly had nothing to do with B core that was significantly overexpressed in the cohort. Very interesting. Andrew, your observation that there's several uses for SAP-B2 really points out something that we've both kind of hinted at, and I think you said before, is that everything is so context-dependent when you're interpreting a stain. There's very few magic bullets out there. Maybe this synovial sarcoma fusion IHC will be one of them, but there's very few magic bullets out there that say, when this is positive, the diagnosis is X or Y or Z. Yeah, that would be no fun. I mean, you know... (laughs) I, I love I love IHC, but the way that I like to uh, use IHC is to look at a tumor, know what it is, ninety five percent certain, have a little differential diagnosis, and and the residents like, yeah, you, you don't know what this is, and put the put a couple marker, a couple pause, and a couple negative, and have it come back, and blam, you know, the next day when it's brown for whatever B core, for example, then you've nailed, you've nailed the diagnosis. I, I do not like IHC when I'm shooting in the dark and I don't suspect any of you do either. Yeah. Just wait though. Someone give it enough time and someone will find out that like 
the the SS18 SSX new fusion antibody is like positive in 90% of seborrheic keratoses or something right <laughs> it's like awesome yeah that's why I tell my my the, the antibody is the most specific the day that it's first published about and then it just goes downhill from there it's just a matter of how far downhill it goes right yeah. and or like yeah. you said it's, it's it, that it becomes that in, in this setting it can be useful but uh but yeah the, you can't just throw stuff out there and see what happens or you'll stain yourself into a hole right yeah. And then you got to explain why, oh, despite the presence of stain X, Y, and Z, which I think is aberrant, I still think that it's the diagnosis I wanted it to be in the beginning, right? <laughs> yeah. I've done it. I've been there. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm an expert at such double talk. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? It's, that's the, and the fascinating thing for me is, you know, being such a fan of, of molecular genetics and developmental biology is, there really isn't a lot of aberrant staining. You can almost always, you know, with with tools like gene expression profiling data, you can almost always explain through gene expression or developmental biology the results of your the results of your staining. Can we go to another topic? So I was going to ask. So would you still um, diagnose solid alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma if the tumor is fusion negative? Yeah, that's a great question. So. The, the histologic answer to this is pretty straightforward. The, the answer is yes, because when you look at things where the majority of the tumor pattern is alveolar, 80% or so of those cases are going to have a PAX fusion, but 20% are going to be negative. But histologically, they're still best classified as alveolar. What's, I think, clouding the picture for people when they think about this is that the data has shown through COG studies, children's oncology group studies have shown that outcome is really closely tied to the fusion status. So there was a paper I was involved with a couple of years ago where we looked back at COG data and we showed that if a patient is clinically low risk and they have alveolar histology, if they're fusion negative, they're going to do really well. And so that based on outcomes like that, the current COG trial is actually using fusion status rather than histology to stratify patients. Okay. So you do then fusion, the fusion on every, um, every rhabdo you have, even if it looks embryonal or something else, or only if you suspect it to be alveolar. That's a fantastic question. So I would do the fusion testing on any case that looks like it's alveolar or has what we call the dense pattern of embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma where the cells are the nuclei are packed tightly together. It looks very blue. Cytologically, in those dense embryonals look different than the alveolar because the dense embryonal tend to have smaller nuclei that are polygonal and a little more variable in size. Uh, but I think those are important ones to discriminate because obviously the outcome for that patient is probably more closely tied to the fusion status. Now that said, the ongoing COG trial is requiring fusion status as an enrollment criteria. In my practice, most of those patients are headed for that clinical trial. And when we know they're enrolling, we'll go ahead and order the fish testing. So we should have that so they can be enrolled in a timely fashion. Yeah, I feel like- so is, that, is that the same for adults? I think for adults, they tend to get different types of rhabdomyosarcomas. Uh, in older adults, you can get the very polyamorphic rhabdomyosarcoma that are not associated with fusions. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily- so I wouldn't I wouldn't test those for FOXO one fusions, but adults, you know, younger adults can get alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma, and I certainly think that that 
pattern of histology and fusion status is going to hold true. I'm interested in uh, I'm interested in in Jared's experience with uh, with rhabdo with rhabdomyosarcoma. I don't see very many alveolar rhabdomyosarcomas. Most of the most of the diagnoses that and there are a few. Uh, most of the diagnoses of rhabdomyosarcoma that I make are embryonal. Uh, and then I've made some, uh, and backed into, struggled into a diagnosis of uh, spinal cell rhabdomyosarcoma, uh, in a couple of cases, the, the last couple of years. And I think it's really interesting, you know, would you, would you diagnose, uh, alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma or even solid alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma without a fusion? And I, it depends. It depends on it depends on how many cases you've seen. So, so probably you know Mike can because he's seen the most cases. And I'd have a case and I'd go, oh, I think this is alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma, and and do the IHC and send it for we do it by NGS. And if I didn't find a FOXO one, I'd go running for a consultant to hold my hand through the through the diagnosis yeah i mean i i honestly i see a bunch of sarcomas but rhabdo is still pretty uncommon when i see something that stains with desmond and myogenin in my practice more often than not it's something with heterologous rhabdo differentiation sure. yeah. you know mpnst um we've seen a melanoma with true yeah. rhabdomyosarcomas differentiation we published that a couple of years ago with like striations and everything just mind-blowing yeah. um but uh yeah if i think it's alveolar i will for, for me, I'll always at least test for the fusion. And so far, the things I've had that looked alveolar have been fusion positive. Not, I don't see enough pediatric cases like Mike does to, to have encountered um, things that looked like truly that, like they were going to be alveolar, but then were fusion negative. So that's kind of outside my experience. If, it, if I'm pretty confident that it's not alveolar because it's, you know, got like not like that dense, smaller cell embryonal look, but looks like pleomorphic rhabdo or something else. I won't do the fusion, but I've occasionally had oncologists ask me to do the fusion on things that I was like, I was like, I bet money against this being positive, but if they want me to, sure. If that makes, that's a pretty small cost, I think, to, to make people sleep at night. And if they feel better with that, I'm happy to do it personally. Um, and, and for that matter, I did, uh, we saw uh, a while back, we saw an alveolar rhabdo in the skin, primary in the skin of an elderly, like 80-ish year old uh, woman. And we presented that at a meeting in, the, in my residence working on the paper right now, actually. Um, I almost misdiagnosed it as a Merkel cell carcinoma. It had focal dot light keratin, but it was keratin seven, not keratin 20. I tried, I tried neurofilament. I tried everything and just had a little bit of, little bit of keratin and, and a little bit of synaptophysin, which has of course been described in alveolar rhabdo, but it was an 80 year old with a round blue cell malignancy in the skin I did heme markers. I did everything else. And I thought the only way to make sense of this is that it has to just be a Merkel. That's just CK20 negative. It's been described. They're really rare, but I thought that must be, and I was going to tell them, you know, go check the lungs, but TTF1 was negative. And then it was a great example of how sometimes you start down the path of immunostaining and you jump past some of the early points because you're pretty sure which branches you're going to go towards in the tree. And I didn't think of one of those early markers that I should have always done. If you gave me a kid and said it's a malignant round cell tumor or an adult, I would have started with a Desmond, but it was in the skin. And I was already like, this is either Merkel or it's a hematopoietic malignancy. 
So I didn't even think about doing Desmond because I was already so sure that it was Merkel and trying to prove that. And at the end, the day I was going to sign it out after multiple rounds of staying, I thought, you know, I didn't do Desmond and wall to wall Desmond. And it was myogenin and it was fusion positive. And I was like, so it's, it was such a great learning lesson of how it's so easy to skip past those early points. So I, I try to tell the residents that I always try to go back at the end of a complicated case and look over my stains again and think, is there, is there anything I didn't do that I normally would have done here? Because it's easy to jump past. It was a consult case that someone had sent into me once they had gotten a couple markers. So I had already had like a, a more limited differential than I would have if I just got the case on H&E. So it was a great lesson. And thankfully, we, and the patient's doing well, actually. So hopefully all will go well for her. You know, that's the other thing I've noticed. I don't know if this happens to you guys too uh, or not, but you know, when you get the consult cases and they've already been partially worked up, it kind of messes with my mind, right? Like you see some of the stains and then you kind of lose your own, um, what is it, like work uh, process, right? Or thought process. It just like, I don't know, it, it totally messes with my head. So I really like to get the stains that were done outside without, you know, looking at the report even, just, just to keep an open mind. In my experience, since we're a referral center and we get uh, a lot of outside consults and referrals, uh, sometimes it's really difficult to form a you know, good or correct differential diagnosis when you're kind of biased by the outside stains, like the stains or the studies that were done on the outside, right? So I try and keep an open mind and look at the H&E without looking at the outside IHCs first or without looking at the report because sometimes you lose your own thought process when you see a stain that doesn't make sense. Or sometimes, you know, that stain directs you into a direction that is not, you know, that's not really appropriate. But it's just like when you see that stain, you just can't stop thinking about what it's supposed to mean. You know, you get one differential in your mind and you just get fixated on that. Um, So I think it's really good to keep an open mind and, you know, work everything in a systematic way and, um, you know, get, you you know, follow your, your, but you know, the logic that you're supposed to follow when you do the IATs. Every time I look at a console, the first thing that I do is I flip over the outside paperwork and I look at the H&E and I generate a differential diagnosis. And if they've already ordered a bunch of stains, but I've, I'm ordering virtual stains and then they're either there or they're not. And sometimes some of them are there and sometimes, you know, most of them are there. And then I look at the stains, but, but not before I've thought through the case, the case on, on my, on my own without, without being biased. And uh, yeah, it does, it doesn't, it doesn't let you, it doesn't let you down. Recalling Jared's uh, arms in the 80 year old woman uh, yeah, if I, if I have the strong morphologic impression and the IHC clinches it, and if I, if I swing and miss, maybe I'll do a second panel, but if I can't solve it in, in two panels, I start all the way back at the beginning. And like when I gave my lecture, it's this mantra, carcinoma, sarcoma, lymphoma, melanoma, germ cell tumor, mesothelioma, para, paraganglioma, pheochromocytoma. I write it on the piece of paper. And I, and I sort of go through each of these and say, have I adequately excluded all these different differential or, or not? And yeah, that approach doesn't let me. I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one who writes it on the paper. I scribble all over. I mean, I love the idea of a paperless system, which I'm nowhere close to yet, 
but I like actually having the paper there to kind of write out, especially on complicated things. Okay. I'm thinking of these six things. Yeah. And then the residents and fellows can always tell uh, how badly I suck at, at a potential case by like, I'm like, here's my differential. And they're like, oh, so you don't have any idea. And I'm like, basically it's one of these eight or 10 things. Right. Yeah. Or maybe it's nothing. But yeah, the longer that list is every once in a while though, I get to cross all the things off and solve it. And that's really satisfying. Yeah. Then there's those nine other times out of 10 where I can't figure it out. I mean, undifferentiated malignant neoplasm. That's a, that's a, that's a thing. I think one of my, oh. one of my questions or one of the questions was, you know, Hey, do you ever diagnose undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma? Of course. Of course. That's like one of the most common sarcoma types. Oh. So it's okay to, it's okay to strike out. But if you don't list all those 10 things on the paper, if you only think of four of them, then you're going to, you're not going to make the diagnosis half, half the time. I mean, for me, UPS, undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma, all I need is a few, a handful of slides on the tray that are just pale blue and don't have any brown. I don't need anything to be brown. And it makes some people very uncomfortable to not have at least one brown stain. And that's why we get Vimentin, right? Because they want something to turn brown. Vimentin will turn it brown for you. You know, the other thing I want to I wanna point out is, you know, I feel like the, the more you do IHC, uh, the more you realize that it's actually like interpreting IHC stains is an art, right? Because like at the beginning, you know, when you're a resident and you don't know much, oh, so this is easy, brown versus blue, I can do this, it's positive or negative, right? But then as, as you start doing it and you see all the little intricacies and everything, you actually, you know, sometimes when things don't make sense, there's a reason they don't make sense, right? So I think it's really important to like, have that have that experience and be able to interpret the the things that don't make sense, you know, or like the patterns of staining that actually may, like Andrew was saying earlier, you know, it may seem aberrant, but it actually is a sign of something in the biology of the tumor, right? Yeah. Um, so I think I think interpreting IC stains is an art. It's just not easy positive negative. It's morphoproteomics. It's I mean, it's there's not as much as much information as there is on an H and E stain slide, but it's, it's certainly not a dichotomized result. Yeah. And that, and the question that I got was, you know, how many cells does it, how many cells do you need staining for, for you, you to call it positive? And, and actually, if you read my reports, they're, they're, they're quite descriptive. Uh, when I do research, I usually use eight scores and it's, you know, zero, one, two, three, and zero to 100%. But I use homogeneous. I, I talked about that with the CDX2. That's diffuse strong staining. I use uh, for transcription factors. I use heterogeneous high. That's like maybe H score 200 ish. I use heterogeneous low for less than that. I use. I might describe something as you know focal, multifocal, rare cells, rare cells weak, and. And in the context of individual stains, that, that, that means something, that means something to me. And that's similar to someone writing a microscopic description of an, of an H and &E, &E right. stain slide. Again, it really depends on the stain too. Like in my world, a lot of things are, you know, by percentage, right? Like for Mick, there's like a 40% cutoff, right? So a you can't just say it's positive. Right. right? Make it positive, weakly positive in normal tissue. It doesn't mean anything if you just right. say it's positive. The intensity matters, the uh, percentage of cell staining matters. And then the thing that I love, the quote that I love the most, I think it's actually a secondhand quote that, you know, Dr. Medeiros always, I think quotes Dr. Warnkeon is like for, you know, for Hodgkin, 
uh, how many CD15 positive cells do you need to diagnose classical Hodgkin lymphoma? And the answer is one good one, yeah. you know? So, <laughs> it's, yeah. so it really depends on the stain, I think. The other bummer is that not all, you know, the, the way that the IHC performs varies so much from lab to lab because these are all assays that have been optimized differently. So, you know, that CDX2 that's heterogeneous in my, in my lab. So I go, oh, I exclude colon cancer. This must come from the upper GI tract. If it came from another lab and it's, and it's too strong, then everything looks, everything looks homogeneous and your ability to, to discriminate things, uh, fall, falls away. My favorite example of the problem with, you know, the correct level of discrimination is calretinin. If I get a Hirschsprung case and the control is a mesothelioma, I know that there's potential for that to be the, the reason that something is wrong or confusing because the difference between a Hirschsprung case that should be negative and a normal case that should be positive by calretinin, you can actually overstain everything and turn those negative cases positive. So if your control is calibrated to something like mesothelioma that's very, very strong or, or is calibrated to turn a mesothelioma very brown, you may actually be turning Hirschsprung cases positive with calretinin. So it's really important when you're doing calretinin for Hirschsprung that you have the control block that contains a known Hirschsprung and a known normal. So you can see the difference. When you say positive, do you mean that the calretinin is not expressed or it is, or it is expressed? Calretinin is normally expressed and it's lost in Hirschsprung. The problem I've seen is that a case that they can't find good ganglion cells, but they do the calretinin and it's brown. Yeah. And in that's a patient with Hirschsprung. In a patient that is, is indeed Hirschsprung, but they're confused about the calretinin staining because their control was a mesothelioma. And so they're, they've titrated that stain to turn the mesothelioma really darkly brown. And in the bowel, it's going to turn normal and abnormal brown. Yep. So you, so you, so you're saying a patient with Hirschsprung with signal on calretinin. Yeah. That's overstaining for. That can be overstaining if the control is not calibrated right. So a really, really important concept in immunohistochemistry is something called fit for purpose. And that's that, you know, I, and it, I talked about this SAP-V2 example where you use eight different ways, but ideally each purpose, the stain is optimized for the individual purpose. So Mike's example is, is perfect that that in the ideal setting, uh, your calretinin is optimized for a Hirschsprung case. And you have a different calretinin set of conditions for to detect mesothelioma. In in practice, for laboratory directors, you, like for SAP-V2, the expression is usually really, really high and pretty uniformly high, and it doesn't matter that much. But but for the example of Hirschsprung, uh, you know you you can't you can't blow that. So I had the exact opposite experience. So we had our our antibody that was optimized in mesothelioma, but we use it for Hirschsprung and the control is mesothelioma. Most labs use a polyclonal to calretinin and polyclonals compared to monoclonals, they, they have a greater tendency to vary uh, their performance from lot to lot because they, they come out of an animal as a, 
as opposed to something that comes out of an animal and it's like, oh, it's this monoclonal antibody and it's at this concentration and it's exactly the same every time. And we had a new lot of polyclonal cowretinin. We did our lot to lot comparison. The mesothelioma was still positive, but less brown than normal. I didn't know it at the time. And I had a Hirschsprung biopsy and I didn't see any ganglion cells, but it wasn't a good biopsy. And I did a calretinin and it was negative. And I was concerned that the patient had Hirschsprung, but I looked at the control and I saw that it was weak. And uh, we re-optimized our calretinin immunostain actually re-optimized it around accurately classifying Hirschsprung disease. Cause that's the, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to get one of those, one of those cases, uh, wrong, but it was super confusing to all the residents, the tech in the lab. It was incredibly confusing to the pediatric, uh, surgeon. What do you, what do you mean? You can't turn around a, a cow retinin that it's going to take you a a few days. You normally turn these results around in uh, in a few in a few hours. So fit for fit for purpose is is the concept of of optimizing the stain around its a single diagnostic purpose. I've got one question that that has been burning. Not very important clinically, but mast cells they stain with a variety of weird markers that they're not supposed to stain with. Like then. I don't know if mastocytomas do or mastocytosis, but normal mast cells, I find ever since fellowship, and I, I find they'll stain with MART1, pancytokeratin AE1, AE3, uh, myogenin, cytoplasmic, you know, granule staining, and a couple others, but I, oh, Desmond sometimes, but it's not, I've had different people give me different explanations. I think clearly the mast cells can't be making all of these antigens. That just doesn't make sense. No. But I've, but people have said, oh, it's the peroxidase, it's this, but it doesn't seem to do it all the time. Even like in my own lab, some cases will do it using the same antibody and I can't figure out why. I mean, I can recognize the pattern right away, these scattered cells with little granular staining and I love to quiz my residents and trip them up. I even have a little YouTube video about how to recognize it because I think it can really mess people up, especially like MART1 and a lymph node with some mast cells scattered around. You can get burned if you don't know about that. You'll say, oh, it's brown. Like, like Sanam said, oh, it's brown, must be positive. But anyway, why does it happen? Teach me, Master. I, I think he's. I think he's asking Mike. Uh, he must be asking you. <laughs> you know, obviously, that we have. We all. We all have that same observa- observation, and we see that every day. That mast cells are one of the most frequently aberrantly react reacting. It's non-specific reactivity. I. I. What, whatever teacher told you that it was uh, peroxidase activity. Uh, you know, that's the closest, that's the closest to an ex, to an explanation. It was Sharon. Uh, she cause obvious, me. cause obviously mast cells are full of, you know, they're full of something, they're full of something, they're full of vent, they're full of enzymes. Right. So yeah. it's either, it's either peroxidase or some similar enzyme and, uh, and a, an explanation as to why you would see it sometimes, but not all that, not all the time. So the signals re the signal is real. The the you know the there there is the you know uh, the chromogen is re is being acted upon by some enzyme in that in that cell. It's just you haven't you haven't localized the you know you're not localizing an antigen. But of course we do uh, we do um, endogenous peroxidase 
uh, blocking or ex ex extinguishing, but it's another thing that's not fit for purpose. We, you know, give the same squirt of hydrogen peroxide in on every case, and mm. and maybe it has to do with the peroxidase activity in in those mast cells on that slide relative to to other to other ones. That's how I've re reasoned it away. Can I pose a theory? And this is not backed up by any data or any biological significance, I guess. But from looking at, you know, mast cells, uh, obviously I see mast cells in the context of bone marrow, it's like normal mast cells, right? And they love to degranulate. Yeah. So I think maybe the variability that you see, like why you see it sometimes and you don't, depends on how intact it is and oh. how, right? I mean, maybe. And whether it's like in the stages, in, in, in you know the various stages of degranulation, and, you know, and I don't know which. It makes sense because mast cells look different to me. Like, on, yeah. and again, not, not always. Again, if, from a uniform H and E that I'm used to every day, sometimes they really pop and stand out, and you can see their granules. And sometimes they're there, but they're real tiny and subtle, and and not very right. granular. Maybe that's a that's a good point. They're at different stages. So sometimes you see them, but they're actually not intact anymore, right? Mm -hmm. But you and and it's and that would be really difficult to tell on an H and E stain. It's actually easier on a smear or on a Giensa stain to 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 mm -hmm. tell that they're not intact. Uh, but on H and E, it's it's not possible. So maybe that's cool. that's one explanation. I gotta say, mast cell cell type. I love. I love mast. I love. Mass. I know they're amazing. Whatever. They're spicy. Whatever the explanation for their cross reactivity with many things, calretinin is actually one of the places that I love to see them be positive because it tells me that when I have a biopsy where I don't see the normal staining in the lamina propria that I'd expect in the, in the colon and I'm suspecting Hirschsprung, I'd like to see some mast cells light up. So it like, makes me feel better that there wasn't some technical problem with the tissue. Yeah. Internal yeah, control, internal even control. if it's not real reactivity, at least the you know, yeah. got squirted on the slide. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, it's happened again. You squandered another perfectly good hour listening to IHC Talk. And remember, no stain's perfect, but almost anything's better than Vimentin. Don't stain like my brother. <laughs> Don't stain like my brother. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being on, everybody. Thank you. Support for the Free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod. Hi. <laughs> Hi. I'm on the podcast.